Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Ineash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 41, Frontal Override The biting January wind howled around the vast, blank stone walls that demarcated the material bounds of the castle Hogwarts, whispering and whistling in odd pitches as it blew past closed windows and stone turrets. The most recent snow had mostly blown away, but occasional patches of melted and refrozen ice still stuck to the stone face and blazed reflected sunlight. From a distance, it must have looked like Hogwarts was blinking hundreds of eyes. A sudden gust made Draco flinch and try, impossibly, to press his body even closer to the stone, which felt like ice and smelled like ice. Some utterly pointless instinct seemed convinced that he was about to be blown off the outer wall of Hogwarts, and that the best way to prevent this was to jerk around in helpless reflex and possibly throw up. Draco was trying very hard not to think about the six stories worth of empty air underneath him, and focus, instead, on how he was going to kill Harry Potter. You know, Mr. Malfoy, said the young girl beside him in a conversational tone. If Asir had told me that someday I'd be hanging onto the side of a castle by my fingertips, trying not to look down, or think about how loud Mum would scream if she saw me, I wouldn't have had any idea how it would happen, except that it'd be Harry Potter's fault. Earlier the two Allied generals stepped together over Longbottom's body, their boots hitting the floor in almost perfect synchrony. Only a single soldier now stood between them and Harry, a Slytherin boy named Samuel Clemens, whose hand was clenched white around his wand, held upward to sustain his prismatic wall. The boy's breathing was coming rapidly, but his face showed the same cold determination that lit the eyes of his general, Harry Potter, who was standing behind the prismatic wall at the dead end of the corridor next to an open window, with his hands held mysteriously behind his back. The battle had been ridiculously difficult for the enemy being outnumbered two to one. It should have been easy. Dragon Army and the Sunshine Regiment had melded together easily in practice sessions. They'd fought each other long enough to know each other very well indeed. Morale was high, both armies knowing that this time they weren't just fighting to win for themselves, but fighting for a world free of traitors. Despite the surprised protests of both generals, the soldiers of the combined army had insisted on calling themselves Dramini's Sungan Argument, and produced patches for their insignia of a smiling face wreathed in flames. But Harry's soldiers had all blackened their own insignia. It didn't look like paint, more like they'd burned that part of their uniforms, and they'd fought all through the upper levels of Hogwarts with a desperate fury. The cold rage that Draco sometimes saw in Harry had seemed to trickle down into his soldiers, and they'd fought like it hadn't been play. And Harry had emptied out his entire bag of tricks. There had been tiny metal balls, Granger had identified them as ball bearings, on floors and staircases, rendering them impassable until cleared. Only Harry's army had already practiced coordinated hover charms, and they could fly their own people right over the obstacles they'd made. You couldn't bring devices into the game from outside, but you could transfigure anything you wanted during the game, so long as it was safe. And that just wasn't fair when you were fighting a boy raised by scientists, who knew about things like ball bearings, and skateboards, and bungee cords. And so it had come to this. The survivors of the Allied forces had cornered the last remnants of Harry Potter's army in a dead-end corridor. 
Weasley and Vincent had rushed Longbottom at the same time, moving together like they'd practiced for weeks instead of hours. And somehow, Longbottom had managed to hex them both before falling himself. And now it was Draco and Granger and Padma, and Samuel and Harry. And by the looks of Samuel, his prismatic wall couldn't last much longer. Draco had already leveled his wand at Harry, waiting for the prismatic wall to fall of its own accord. There was no need to waste a breaking drill hex before then. Padma leveled her own wand at Samuel, Granger leveled hers at Harry. Harry was still hiding his hands behind his back instead of aiming his wand, and looking at them with a face that could have been carved out of ice. It might be a bluff. It probably wasn't. There was a brief, tense silence. And then Harry spoke. I'm the villain now, the young boy said coldly. And if you think villains are this easy to finish off, you'd better think again. Beat me when I'm fighting seriously, and I'll stay beaten. But lose, and we'll be doing this all over again next time. The boy brought his hands forward, and Draco saw that Harry was wearing strange gloves, with a peculiar grayish material on the fingertips, and buckles that strapped the gloves tightly to his wrists. Besides Draco, the Sunshine General gasped in horror, and Draco, without even asking why, fired a breaking drill hex. Samuel staggered. He let out a scream as he staggered, but he held the wall. And if Padma or Granger fired now, they would exhaust their own forces so badly that they might just lose. Harry! shouted Granger. You can't be serious! Harry was already in motion. And as he swung out the open window, his cold voice said, Follow if you dare! The icy wind howled around them. Draco's arms were already starting to feel tired. It had developed that, yesterday, Harry had carefully demonstrated to Granger exactly how to transfigure the gloves he was currently wearing, which used something called Gecko Sita, and how to glue transfigured patches of the same material to the toes of their shoes. And Harry and Granger had, in innocent childish play, tried climbing around the walls and ceiling a little. And that, also yesterday, Harry had supplied Granger with a grand total of exactly two doses of feather-falling potion to carry around in her pouch, just in case. Not that Padma would have followed them anyway. She wasn't crazy. Draco carefully peeled loose his right hand, stretched it over as far as he could, and slapped it down on the stone again. Beside him, Granger did the same. They'd already swallowed the feather-falling potion. It was skirting the edges of the game rules, but the potion wouldn't be activated unless one of them actually fell. And so long as they didn't fall, they weren't using the item. Professor Quirrell was watching them. The two of them were perfectly, completely, utterly safe. Harry Potter, on the other hand, was going to die. I wonder why Harry is doing this, said General Granger in a reflective tone, as she slowly peeled the fingertips of one hand off the wall with an extended sticky sound. Her hand plopped back down again almost as soon as it was lifted. I'll have to ask him that after I kill him. It was amazing how much the two of them were turning out to have in common. Draco didn't really feel like talking right now, but he managed to say, through gritted teeth, Could be revenge. For the date. Really? After all this time? How sweet of him. I guess I'll find some truly romantic way to thank him. 
What's he got against you? The icy wind howled around them. One might have thought it would feel safer to have ground under your feet again. But if that ground was a slanted roof, tiled with rough slats, which had rather a lot more ice on it than the stone walls, and you were running across it at a high rate of speed, then you would be sadly mistaken. Luminos! shouted Draco. Luminos! shouted Granger. Luminos! Luminos! The distant figure was dodging and scrambling as it ran, and not a single shot hit, but they were gaining. Until Granger slipped. It was inevitable in retrospect. In real life, you couldn't actually run across icy slanted rooftops at a high rate of speed. And also inevitably, because it happened without the slightest thought, Draco spun and grabbed for Hermione's right arm, and he caught her, only she was already too far off balance, and she was falling and pulling Draco with her, and it all happened so quickly. There was a hard, painful impact. Not just Draco's weight hitting the rooftop, but some of Granger's weight too. And if she'd hit just a little bit closer to the edge, they could have made it. But instead, her body tipped again, and her legs slipped off, and her other hand grabbed frantically. And that was how Draco ended up holding onto Granger's arm in a white grip, while her other hand clenched frantically at the edge of the rooftop, and the toes of Draco's shoes dug into the edge of a roof tile. Hermione! Harry's voice shrieked distantly. Draco! Whispered Granger's voice, and Draco looked down. That might have been a mistake. There was a lot of air underneath her. Nothing but air. They were on the edge of a rooftop that had jutted out from the main stone wall of Hogwarts. He's gonna come help me, but first he's going to luminos both of us. There's no way he wouldn't. You have to let me go. It should have been the easiest thing in the world. She was just a mudblood. Just a mudblood. Just a mudblood. She wouldn't even be hurt. Draco's brain wasn't listening to anything Draco was telling it right now. Do it. Hermione Granger whispered, her eyes blazing without a single trace of fear. Do it, Draco. Do it. You can beat him yourself. We have to win, Draco. There was a sound of someone running, and it was coming closer. Oh, be rational. The voice in Draco's head sounded an awful lot like Harry Potter teaching lessons. Are you going to let your brain run your life? Aftermath 1. It was taking a bit of effort for Daphne Greengrass to keep herself quiet as Millicent Bulstrode retold the story in the Slytherin Girls' common room, a cozy, cool place in the dungeons running beneath the Hogwarts Lake, with fish swimming past every window and couches you could lie down in if you wanted. Mostly because, in Daphne's opinion, it was a perfectly good story already without all of Millicent's improvements. And then what? gasped Flora and Hestia Caro. General Granger looked up at him, Millicent said dramatically. And she said, Draco, you've got to let go of me. Don't worry about me, Draco. I promise I'll be all right. And what do you suppose Malfoy did then? He said, never, shouted Charlotte Willand, and held on even tighter. All the listening girls except Pansy Parkinson nodded. Nope. He dropped her, and then he jumped up and shot General Potter. The end. 
There was a stunned pause. You can't do that, said Charlotte. She's a mudblood, said Pansy, sounding confused. Of course he let go. Well, Malfoy shouldn't have grabbed her in the first place then. But once he grabbed her, he had to hang on, especially in the face of approaching certain doom. Tracy Davis, sitting next to Daphne, was nodding along in firm agreement. I don't see why, said Pansy. That's because you haven't the tiniest smidgen of romance in you, said Tracy. Besides, you can't just go dropping girls. A boy he'd drop a girl like that. He'd drop anyone. He'd drop you, Pansy. What do you mean, drop me? Daphne couldn't resist anymore. You know, Daphne said darkly. You're eating breakfast one day at our table. And the next thing you know, Malfoy lets go of you, and you're falling off the top of Hogwarts. That's what. Yeah, said Charlotte. He's a witch dropper. You know why Atlantis fell? Said Tracy. Because someone like Malfoy dropped it. That's why. Daphne lowered her voice. In fact, what if Malfoy's the one who made Hermione, I mean General Granger, slip in the first place? What if he's out to make all the Muggleborns trip and fall? You mean? Gasped Tracy. That's right. What if Malfoy is the heir of Slipperin, the next Drop Lord? Which was far too good a line for anyone to keep to themselves. So by nightfall, it was all over Hogwarts, and the next morning, it was the Quibbler's headline. Aftermath two. Hermione made sure she got to their usual classroom nice and early that evening. Just so that she would be there by herself in a chair, peacefully reading a book, when Harry got there. If there was any way for a door to creak open apologetically, that was how the door was creaking open. Um," said Harry Potter's voice. Hermione kept reading. "I'm um kind of sorry. I didn't mean for you to actually fall off the roof or anything. It had been quite an entertaining experience, in fact." I uh, I don't have much experience apologizing. I'll fall to my knees if you want, or buy you something expensive. Hermione, I don't know how to apologize to you for this. What can I do? Just tell me. She kept reading the book in silence. It wasn't as if she had any ideas how Harry could apologize either. Right now, she was just feeling a sort of odd curiosity as to what would happen if she kept reading her book for a while. End chapter forty one. Chapter forty two, courage. Romantic, Hermione said. They're both boys. Wow, Daphne said, sounding a little shocked. You mean Muggles really do hate that? I thought that was just something the Death Eaters made up. No, said an older Slytherin girl. Hermione didn't recognize. It's true. They have to get married in secret, and if they're ever discovered, they get burned at the stake together. And if you're a girl who thinks it's romantic, they burn you too. That can't be right," objected a Gryffindor girl, while Hermione was still trying to sort out what to say to that. There wouldn't be any Muggle girls left. She'd kept on reading quietly, and Harry Potter had kept on trying to apologize. And it had soon dawned on Hermione that Harry had realized, possibly for the first time in his life, that he'd done something annoying, and that Harry, definitely for the first time in his life, 
was terrified that he'd lost her as a friend. And she'd started to feel, A, guilty, and B, worried about the direction Harry's increasingly desperate offers were going. But she still had no idea what sort of apology was appropriate, so she'd said that the Ravenclaw girls should vote on it, and this time she wouldn't fix the outcome, though she hadn't mentioned that part, to which Harry had instantly agreed. The next day, practically every Ravenclaw girl over the age of 13 had voted to have Draco drop Harry. Hermione had felt mildly disappointed that it was that simple, though it was obviously fair. Right now, however, standing just outside the great doors of the castle amid half the female population of Hogwarts, Hermione was beginning to suspect that there were things going on here that she did not understand, and that she desperately hoped neither of her fellow generals ever heard about. You couldn't really see the details from up there, just the general fact of a sea of expectant female faces. You've got no idea what this is about, do you? said Draco, sounding amused. Harry had read quite a fair number of books he wasn't supposed to read, not to mention a few quibbler headlines. Boy Who Lived gets Draco Malfoy pregnant? said Harry. Okay, you do know what this is about, said Draco. I thought Muggles hated that. Only the dumb ones. But, um... Aren't we a little young? Not too young for them, said Draco. He snorted. Girls. They silently walked toward the edge of the roof. So, I'm doing this for revenge on you. But why are you doing this? Harry's mind made a lightning calculation, weighing the factors whether it was too soon. Honestly? because I meant to have her climb up the icy walls, but I didn't mean to have her fall off the roof. And, um, I kinda did feel really awful about that. I mean, I guess I actually did start seeing her as my friendly rival after a while. So this is a real apology to her, not a plot or anything. There was a pause. Then, yeah, I understand. Harry didn't smile. It might have been the most difficult non-smile of his life. Draco looked at the edge of the roof and made a face. This is going to be a lot harder to do on purpose than by accident, isn't it? Harry's other hand held the roof in a reflexively terrified grip, his fingers white on the cold, cold stone. You could know with your conscious mind that you'd drunk the feather-falling potion, Knowing it with your unconscious mind was another matter entirely. It was every bit as scary as Harry had thought it might have been for Hermione, which was justice. Draco! said Harry. Controlling his voice wasn't easy, but the Ravenclaw girls had given them a script. You've got to let me go! Okay, said Draco, and let go of Harry's arm. Harry's other hand scrabbled at the edge, and then, without any decision being made, his fingers failed, and Harry fell. There was a brief moment when Harry's stomach tried to leap up into his throat, and his body tried desperately to orient itself in the absence of any possible way to do so. There was a brief moment when Harry could feel the feather-falling potion kicking in, starting to slow him, a sort of lurching, cushioning feeling. And then, something pulled on Harry, and he accelerated downward again, faster than gravity. Harry's mouth had already opened and begun screaming while part of his brain tried to think of something creative he could do. Part of his brain tried to calculate how much time he had left to be creative, 
and a tiny rump part of his brain noticed that he wasn't even going to finish the remaining time calculation before he hit the ground. Harry was desperately trying to control his hyperventilating, and it wasn't helping him to hear the shrieking of all the girls, now lying in heaps on the ground and each other. Good heavens! said the unfamiliar man, he of the old-looking clothes and faintly scarred face, who was holding Harry in his arms. Out of all the ways I imagined we might meet again someday, I did not expect it to be you falling out of the sky. Harry remembered the last thing he'd seen, the falling body, and managed to gasp. Professor! Quirrell! He'll be all right after a few hours, said the unfamiliar man holding Harry. He's just exhausted. I wouldn't have thought it possible. He must have knocked down 200 students just to make sure he got whoever was jinxing you. Gently, the man set Harry upright on the ground, supporting him the while. Harry carefully balanced himself and nodded to the man. He let go, and Harry promptly fell over. The man helped him rise again, making sure, at all times, to stand between Harry and the girls now picking themselves up from the ground, his head constantly glancing in that direction. Harry, the man said quietly and very seriously, Do you have any idea which of these girls might have wanted to kill you? Not murder, said a strained voice. Just stupidity. This time it was the unfamiliar man who seemed to almost fall over, utter shock on his face. Professor Quirrell was already sitting up from where he'd fallen on the grass. Good heavens, you shouldn't be... Mr. Lupin, your concerns are misplaced. No wizard, no matter how powerful, casts such a charm by strength alone. You must do it by being efficient. Professor Quirrell didn't stand up, though. Thank you, Harry whispered. And then, thank you, to the man standing beside him as well. What happened? said the man. I should have foreseen it myself, Professor Quirrell said, his voice crisp with disapproval. Some number of girls tried to summon Mr. Potter to their own particular arms. Individually, I suppose, they all thought they were being gentle. Oh. Consider it a lesson in preparedness, Mr. Potter. Had I not insisted that there be more than one adult witness to this little event, and that both of us have our wands out, Mr. Lupin would not have been available to slow your fall afterward, and you would have been gravely injured. Sir, you should not say such things to the boy, said the man, Mr. Lupin, apparently. Who is... Harry started to say. The only other person who was available to watch, besides myself. I introduce you to Remus Lupin, who is here temporarily to instruct students in the Patronus charm, though I am told that the two of you have already met. Harry studied the man, puzzled. He should have remembered that faintly scarred face, that strange, gentle smile. Where did we meet? In Godric's Hollow, said the man. I changed a number of your nappies. Mr. Lupin's temporary office was a small stone room with a small wooden desk, and Harry couldn't see anything of what Mr. Lupin was sitting on, suggesting that it was a small stool just like the one in front of his desk. Harry guessed that Mr. Lupin wouldn't be at Hogwarts for long or use this office much, and so he told the house elves not to waste the effort. It said something about a person that he tried not to bother house elves. Specifically, it said that he'd been sorted into Hufflepuff, 
Since, to the best of Harry's knowledge, Hermione was the only non-Hufflepuff who worried about bothering house elves. Harry himself thought her qualms rather silly. Whoever had created house elves in the first place had been unspeakably evil, obviously. But that didn't mean Hermione was doing the right thing now by denying sentient beings the drudgery they had been shaped to enjoy. Please sit down, Harry, the man said quietly. His formal robes were of low quality, not quite tattered, but visibly worn by the passage of time in a way that simple repair charms couldn't fix. Shabby was the word that came to mind. And despite that, somehow there was a dignity about him that couldn't have been obtained by fine and expensive robes, that wouldn't have fit with fine robes, that was the exclusive property of the shabby. Harry had heard of humility, but he'd never seen the real thing before. Only the satisfied modesty of people who thought it was part of their style and wanted you to notice. Harry took a seat on the small wooden stool in front of Mr. Lupin's short desk. Thank you for coming, the man said. No, thank you for saving me, said Harry. Let me know if you ever need something impossible done. The man seemed to hesitate. Harry, may I ask a personal question? You can ask, certainly. I have a lot of questions for you, too. Mr. Lupin nodded. Harry, are your step-parents treating you well? My parents, Harry said. I have four. Michael, James, Petunia, and Lily. Ah, said Mr. Lupin. And then, ah, again. He seemed to be blinking rather hard. Aye, that is good to hear, Harry. Dumbledore would tell none of us where you were. I was afraid he might think you ought to have wicked step-parents or some such. Harry wasn't sure Mr. Lupin's concern had been misplaced, considering his own first encounter with Dumbledore. But it had turned out well enough, so he said nothing. What about my... Harry searched for a word that didn't raise them higher or put them lower. Other parents. I want to know... well, everything. A tall order, Mr. Lupin said. He wiped a hand across his forehead. Well, let us begin at the beginning. When you were born, James was so happy that he couldn't touch his wand without it glowing gold for a whole week. And even after that, whenever he held you, or, or saw Lily holding you, or just thought of you, it would happen again. Every now and then, Harry would look at his watch and find that another thirty minutes had passed. He felt slightly bad about making Remus miss dinner, especially since Harry himself would just drop back to 7pm later, but that wasn't enough to stop either of them. Finally, Harry screwed up enough courage to ask the critical question, while Remus was in the middle of an extended discourse on the wonders of James's Quidditch that Harry couldn't quite find the heart to squash more directly. And that was when James pulled off a triple reverse Mulligny dive with extra backspin. The whole crowd went wild. Even some of the Hufflepuffs were cheering. I guess you had to be there, Harry thought. Not that being there would have helped in any way. And said, Mr. Lupin? Something about Harry's voice must have reached the man because he stopped in mid-sentence. Was my father a bully? Remus looked at Harry for a long moment. For a little while. He grew out of it soon enough. Where did you hear that? Harry didn't answer. He was trying to think of something true to say that would deflect suspicion, but he didn't think fast enough. <sighs> Never mind. I can guess who. The faintly scarred face was pinched in disapproval. What a thing to tell. 
Did my father have any extenuating circumstances? Poor home life or something like that? Or was he just being naturally nasty? Cold? Remus's hand swept his hair back, the first nervous gesture Harry had seen from him. Harry, you can't judge your father by what he did as a young boy. I'm a young boy, and I judge myself. Remus blinked twice at that. I want to know why. I want to understand. Because to me, it seems like there isn't any possible excuse for that. Voice shaking a bit. Please tell me anything you know about why he did it, even if it doesn't sound nice. So I don't fall into the same trap myself, whatever it is. It was the thing to do if you were in Gryffindor. Remus said, slowly, reluctantly. And I didn't think so back then. I thought it was the other way around. But it might have been Black who got James into it, really. Black wanted so much to show everyone that he was against Slytherin, you see. We all wanted to believe that blood wasn't destiny. No, Harry, I don't know why Black went after Peter instead of running. It was as though Black was making tragedy for the sake of tragedy that day. The man's voice was unsteady. There was no hint, uh, no warning. We all thought, well, to think he was to be... Remus's voice cut off. Harry was crying. He couldn't help it. It hurt worse to hear it from Remus than anything he'd ever felt himself. Harry had lost two parents he didn't remember, knew only from stories. Remus Lupin had lost all four of his best friends in less than 24 hours. And for the loss of his last remaining one, Peter Pettigrew, there'd just been no reason at all. Sometimes it still hurts to think of him in Azkaban. Remus finished, his voice almost a whisper. I'm glad, Harry, that Death Eaters are not allowed visitors. It means I do not have to feel ashamed of not going. Harry had to swallow hard several times before he could speak. Can you tell me about Peter Pettigrew? He was my father's friend, and it seems that I should know, that I should remember. Remus nodded, water glittering in his own eyes now. I think, Harry, that if Peter had known it would end that way... The man's voice choked up. Peter was more afraid of the Dark Lord than any of us, and if he'd known it would end that way, I don't think he would have done it. But Peter knew the risk, Harry. He knew the risk was real, that it could happen, and yet he stayed by James and Lily's side. All through Hogwarts I used to wonder why Peter hadn't been sorted into Slytherin, or maybe Ravenclaw. Since Peter so adored secrets, he couldn't resist them. Who'd find out things about people, things they wanted kept hidden. A brief, wry look crossed Remus's face. But he didn't use those secrets, Harry. He just wanted to know. And then the Dark Lord's shadow fell over everything. And Peter stood by James and Lily and put his talents to good use. And I understood why the hat had sent him to Gryffindor. Remus's voice was fierce now and proud. It's easy to stand by your friends if you're a hero like Godric. Bold and strong, like people think Gryffindor should be. But if Peter was more afraid than any of us, doesn't that also make him the most brave? It does, Harry said. His own voice was choked to where he almost couldn't talk. If you could, Mr. Lupin, if you have time, there's someone else who I think should hear Peter Pettigrew's story. A student in first-year Hufflepuff named Neville Longbottom. Alice and Frank's boy. 
said Remus, his voice turning sad. I see. It is not a happy story, Harry, but I can tell it again, if you think it will help him. Harry nodded. A brief silence fell. Did Black have any unfinished business with Peter Pettigrew? Anything that would make him seek out Mr. Pettigrew, even if it wasn't a killing matter? Like a secret Mr. Pettigrew knew that Black wanted to know himself, or wanted to kill him to hide? Something flickered in Remus's eyes, but the older man shook his head and said, Not really. That means there is something, said Harry. That wry smile appeared again beneath the salt and pepper mustache. You have a bit of Peter in yourself, I see. But it's not important, Harry. I'm a Ravenclaw. I'm not supposed to resist the temptation of secrets. And, Harry said more seriously, if it was worth Black getting caught, I can't help but think it might matter. Remus looked uncomfortable. I suppose I could tell you when you're older. But really, Harry, it's not important. Just something from our school days. Harry couldn't have put his finger on exactly what tipped him off. It might have been something about the exact tone of nervousness in Remus's voice, or the way the man had said when you're older, that had sparked the sudden leap of Harry's intuition. Actually, I think I've sort of guessed it already. Sorry. Remus raised his eyebrows. Have you? He sounded a bit skeptical. They were lovers, weren't they? There was an awkward pause. Remus gave a slow, grave nod. Once, a long time ago, a sad affair ending in vast tragedy, or so it seemed to us all when we were young. The unhappy puzzlement was plain on his face. But I had thought that was long since over and done and buried beneath adult friendship until the day that Black killed Peter. End chapter 42 Thank you to the talents of the following people. Remus Lupin, Alan Hogan. Hermione Granger, Anonymous. Daphne Greengrass, J.C. Cotton. Tracy Davis was voiced by Lappy. Flora and Hestia Caro by Marika and Yvonne Kulerain. Pansy Parkinson read by Brooke Davis. Slytherin Girl by Cedra. Millicent Bulstrode by Gigi Arndt. The original text for this chapter can be found at fanfiction.net or by googling Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, and there is also a link included in this file's description. To participate in this project, simply send in a reading of any minor character's lines at least three days before an episode airs. Recordings, questions, and comments can be sent to hpmorpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please help spread the word at your social forum of choice. If you're interested in learning more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. A link to the attributions page is found in this file's description. The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. Thank you for listening and come back next week for Chapter 43, Humanism Part 1.